Hello and welcome to The Price of Football, the show that looks at the money behind the beautiful game with me, Kevin Day, and Liverpool University's Kieran Maguire. Kieran, how are you today? All is good. Uh, I'm, I'm up in Liverpool. It's sort of a bit damp outside, but mm. uh, it's, it's what, 10 o'clock in the morning. We've already had phone calls, interviews uh, taking place because uh, this, this, this world in which we've decided to slightly inhabit has, has become a bit bonkers. Yeah, I'm not entirely sure we thought that through four years ago, Kieran. We, it's <laughs> it's it's Newsday, Kieran. We we or I normally like to start with a light-hearted chat about life, love, and the universe before we start. But given the potential gravity of our first story, Kieran, I'm going to um, pass on that. Because things are looking very grim at Rochdale. Yes, um, we're recording this on Wednesday morning, and uh, on Tuesday. Uh, the club put out a press release to say effectively there's going to be an emergency general meeting um, with a view to changing the, the share structure uh, at which will dilute the the shares of existing owners. But most importantly, it will allow the club to issue a lot more shares. Now, we, we contacted Simon Gage, who's the chairman of Rochdale, and, and rather than me go through it, sort of trying to pick it out from... You know, websites and so on. He uh, he popped in for a chat, um, and this is what he had to say. Thanks so much, Simon, for joining us. Uh, I wish the circumstances would be slightly uh, more uh, more upbeat. Um, just before we sort of start with the, the announcement, can you sort of give us a little bit of background as to, to how you got involved with with Dale and? Um, you know, your 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 transactions to date in in, in terms of sort of uh, control and chairman of the club and so on. Yeah, I got involved um, after more turmoil at, at the club in in June twenty twenty one, where a couple of previous directors were were removed uh, by shareholders, and um, as a season ticket holder, and kind of got dragged into the club uh, at that point. Um, I'm not sure I got involved if I known all the facts, but. That, that's that's my fault probably, as with the other directors that joined me at that time. But um, it, it was a difficult time then, and it became more difficult because we'd just been just coming out of COVID, just been relegated from League One, um, and then without those challenges alone, which which was, was struggling enough, we then faced a hostile takeover from a faceless payroll company that that took up the next year and a half of, of fighting to get out of that situation and, and that would never have succeeded because they've never passed any of the FL tests. But um, no, it's, it's been a, it's been a tough three years since then. And uh, this is a culmination of it really that ever since I've been involved, we've been on a downward trajectory where we started off with league one costs and reducing revenue. And we've been chasing our tail on that front ever since until this season where we've kind of got ourselves now, to a more stabilised position, but even that stabilised position is, is a big loss without a cup run or um, or uh, player trading. Right. Okay. So national league, as, as we know, you, you've got you've got parachute payments from the EFL, but they're they're not going to last very long. Um, so, 
as far as the announcement that was concerned, um, I think it took a, a few Dale fans by surprise. Could you sort of explain what the purpose of the meeting and the proposals are and, and the rationale behind it? So we've been trying to sell the club for the last 15 months. Um, Rochdale's got a pretty unique share structure in that there isn't a beneficial owner. There isn't one majority owner. Um, it's, it's owned by the supporters, which is which is fantastic in an ideal world. That's a model I'd love to be able to make work. But unfortunately, the way football is in this country, it's very difficult to run on a sustainable model and you need cash to be able to run the business. And although the supporters are absolutely fantastic at the club and do what they can to, to raise money, it, it just doesn't touch the sides of, of, the, of the kind of initial money that you need just to, to get the club and get some additional revenue big revenue sources into the club, like a stand development or a training ground or, or something along these lines. So we've been trying to sell the club for the 14 months. The issues that we have is that you have to kiss a lot of frogs to find decent investors. And there's so many time wasters out there that you just spend forever and, and, and get talking to and get nowhere. The good investors that we, we do come along, we then hit, problems in that the American market for buying football clubs is very strong at the moment, for example, and they just don't understand the fact that you have to do, I don't know, our club probably 30 transactions to be able to get to a majority stake and none of that money will go into the club. Um, they want to get to about 90%, but that's impossible to do under our current under our current share structures. You just wouldn't be able to get there. Um and they want they want a plan for the club going forward as well, where it becomes cash rich and the debt. There's a plan for the debt and um, one one or two other problems. They want all those issues sorted. So there's all these barriers to investment at the moment. So the announcement yesterday for for an EGM is to try and radically change the share structure of of the football club. So we create a, a new class of shares that allows us to drop the nominal value of those shares to be able to create enough shares for somebody to come in and purchase the club where all the money, we're asking for £2 million, so all the money goes into the football club, it's cash into the football club, and they end up with a 90% ownership of the club at that point. Right, so as a result of that, if I owned 1% of Rochdale historically, it would now be something like 0.01% of Rochdale, which would allow the club to issue the shares to new owners, which would allow them to go to this 90% threshold. Is, is that is that my correct understanding? Yes, that, that's correct. So for the shareholders, including the directors that spent half a million pounds getting out of the Morton House hostile takeover mess, that money's in effect written off. So uh, it's a big hit for supporters. It's a it's a hit, big hit for directors. It's a hit for everybody. But at the end of the day, if we do this, we've got a chance of having a football club at the end of it. If we don't do this, the reality is that we won't have a football club at the end of this. Right. And presumably that's because the the current level of losses, in your view, are not sustainable. The, the losses are sustainable, but we have no cash and no way of raising cash. So... You, you need cash to run the business. We're, we're not a basket case. The losses by us, by 
National League standards are pretty small. The debt by National League standards or even EFL standards is really small. We own our own ground. Um, it's probably worth somewhere between four to six million. We're, we're getting a valuation done at that at the moment. But um, it's not a basket case. It's a very it's a very good investment. But under the fan-owned model, we do not have the cash to run the club. Um, so we've got to find a way of solving that problem. And this new share structure Although it's not probably in an ideal world what everybody would want, it is a lifeline for the club to attract investment. And I'm talking to people at the moment that that will move forward when we get this, or say they'll move forward when we get this structure in place. So um, it's not a lost cause, but it's something we need to do. And it's up to shareholders if, if that's what they want. Right. And sort of, you know, we, we've seen some... M&A deals be very successful in terms of takeovers, others not so. Um, I, I think, I, I guess what shareholders and fans would be concerned about is if we do have new owners, is there some form of protection? You know, what happens if you, you, you mentioned that the, uh, the real estate assets, the property assets are worth four to six million, where if somebody comes in, acquires 90% of the club for, for two million, What's to stop them say, doing a doing a steep deal or, or something similar? Uh, unfortunately, that's that's the risk of of going down this route. Um, but if you look at the club at the minute with no cash, owning an asset that we we can't get a mortgage on that asset, which would be our ideal solution here. The asset is the only thing that we've got of value at the moment to um, to trade on. So all it can do is. And I think we found it a possible investor now that that's as trustworthy as any investor can be. He's got a track records in in the industry. Then they've got they've got an online presence, which a lot of these investors don't, which set the alarm bells ringing straight away. So all we can try and do is, is be as transparent about that investor and and hope and hope it works out in that respect. But also within the football club, and this is where you've got to be realistic, the only way to get the club to a long-term sustainable level is to develop that asset as well. We're quite lucky at the football club in two sides of the ground you can develop. So if we could get a look at other clubs, if there was a hotel behind the main stand, if there was conferencing facilities behind the main stand, if there was an NHS medical centre that you could lease out um, behind the main stand, these are all the ideas that investors have that if they can develop that it brings in the additional income that then means you can grow the football club because as a standalone entity the football club can't stand on its own two feet you do need an additional income stream yep yeah and we've said this on the show on the podcast on many occasions you know what other business do you know is open 25 30 days a year and is paying out bills 365 days a year so it it is a precarious model especially when the running costs because it's a talent-based industry are, are so high. Um, look, you know, we at the podcast we we want there to be a Rochdale. I I can get I can remember my first trip to Rochdale was what 1980, 1981. Where I just just come to uh, to Manchester at university. They all used to play on a Friday night, so you know, I I go along. I remember seeing one of the matches there. Um, if anybody is interested in the club, you know, and we do have a pretty diverse and wide audience. How would they get in contact with yourself or Rochdale? Is there, is there a contact or or how would you advise them? If they get in touch with myself, 
Um, I'm sure you'd be happy happy for you to pass any details on Kieran. And um, we've got all the information that they require to, to make decisions on inv- investment in there. Um, but we, we are working to a tight timeline. So if they want to come and have a six-month due diligence process and that's their time frame, then it's wasting everybody's time. This This needs to be sorted quickly now. And actually, in the last 12 hours since we put the statement out, We've had two or three more new new inquiries, so it's it's not all negative. I'm I'm fairly confident confident as you can be that, that there is a solution here, but it needs the local council, it needs shareholders, it needs an investor, all to come together, and everything to line up for it to happen. Right, absolutely. Um, and, and what I would say, you know, again from my observations, the last time that Rochdale fans had suspicions, you know, and that was certainly raised in respect of Morton House. The fans did an awful lot of their homework. So if anybody's thinking, well, we, we, you know, I can bypass owners and directors rule, um, don't, don't try and put it past the Dale fans. They'll, they'll have you on toast. Um, so no no Romans need need apply. No, that's, that's one of the first things we, we try and say to investors is if you're not in this for the right reasons, your life will be rightly held. You've, you've got to be in it for the right reasons and do the, the right things. And that's the first conversation we have with everybody unfortunately quite a few ignore that and then move on to the next stage but in an ideal world the ideal investor that we'll have will have a big online presence a company um not be hiding behind any any structure or anything like that and and be open to transparent with fans and if they do that they'll be welcomed at Rochdale and it's a I think for pound for pound it's one of the best investments uh, in football at the minute, there's relatively little debt. There's a plan for what debt we have. Um, we own our own asset, the football ground. There's not many clubs that do that. And we're not massively loss-making. So all the ingredients are there to come and buy the club for £2 million and, and be able to move it forward. It, it is a good investment and it is attracting interest. Great, great. Well, well thanks so very much, Gail. I know I've, I've grabbed you at short notice. Um, yeah, we all want all clubs to survive. Uh, I've got a vested interest. One of my best mates, the Prowler, uh, the legendary Prowler, who is a Rochdale fan, uh, who who I, I've shared tours with on cricket, and uh, one of the one of the great characters of uh, of, of Northwest cricket uh, for him as well. Um, I'll, I'm absolutely rooting for you. So good luck in in this. All right, thank you very much. I don't know where to start. It, it strikes me, Kieran, reading about this last night, that this is this is not the case of a, a feckless owner or a reckless owner getting bored. This is a man who's tried his best for the club, but has simply run out of money. Now, and I, I read an interview he gave to the Manchester Evening News in which he said the club is asset rich but cash poor. I presume the assets he's talking about are the ground and the players. Would that be right? That's right. And we've got to be honest, it's the ground. You know, players at National League level, they're on short-term contracts. They, they don't tend to generate a lot of money in their own right. Um, I, I still refer to it as Spotland. I know it's the Crown Oil Arena, but it's, Spot, it's Spotland to us. Um, it's, it's worth a fair amount of money, but getting a bank to lend money to a football club, as, as we've said on many occasions, isn't easy. Um, and you could borrow from other people, but they're the people you don't want to be borrowing money from. So if, if we take a look at what's happened at Rochdale, 
COVID hit everybody, COVID combined with one relegation and then a second relegation and a hostile takeover, which you know kept people busy. Um, and the ongoing losses have have resulted in, in the position where we're in, where uh, you know, Simon and the directors are now going, we think we've taken the club as far as we can, but we don't have the cash to to carry on. Yeah, the, the losses are modest by league, by by national league standards, but we don't have the resources to to keep uh, subsidising the club, and, and therefore there's an urgency to to find a new owner. And this new structure, in in his view, will will assist that because it will allow somebody to come in buy ninety percent of the club, the two million quid, and take it from there. And you know, he, he was honest when, when I when I put it to Simon. Well, you know, what happens if that new person's a Steve Dale? Um, he says we, we can do a bit of work ourselves, but he also pointed out to the fact that y- you don't cross a Rochdale fan. And if we take a look at what happened with Morton House, it was the Dale fans who who did the digging into the background of those people. We don't have the equivalent of an owners and directors regime in the National League that we have in the EFL, which which does make things slightly more risky. But the other alternative is, is that the club just effectively slides out of existence and we don't want that either. Well, I think we should put it into perspective, Kieran, how um, serious this is, because Simon Gage has said if he doesn't find new owners, new investment, essentially by the middle of March, which is three weeks away, then there is a real possibility that the club will have to be liquidated. What I didn't quite understand, Kieran, in, in my research, and you'll know why I didn't understand it because it was complicated grown-up stuff, is he He said the club's management ownership structure has to change. He talked about converting shares into equity, but he said there's an AGM coming up on the 7th, I believe, in which um, several people have to agree to this change of manage- management structure or it will be almost impossible to get new people. And could you explain that a little bit more? Yeah, if, if you want to attract a new owner to a football club, what do you what are you effectively saying? We want your money, and that person is saying, "What am I getting for the money?" Now, you know, one of the things, great things about Rochdale, and you and I both, you know, we know we know the history of the Northwest and the the creation of the co op movement, which came from Rochdale, and, and, and you know, people in the, people in the town are very proud of that and of those connections. Is that Rochdale does have a few hundred shareholders. Persuading all of them to sell their shares is going to be a pain in the ass. So therefore, if I've got a couple of million quid going spare and I'm thinking of buying a football club, having to persuade all those people to to sell their shares to me, and some will say no because some have had their fingers burnt, some are very suspicious, some are very proud to own shares in Rochdale and so on. Um, it, It makes it very difficult. So therefore, you move on to a different club where you only have to go and buy the shares from a, from a handful of people and it's a much easier transaction. So what what they are saying is effectively, if if I own shares in Rochdale, and let's say I own you know, 10% of Rochdale, what the club is going to do is to change those that share position that you lose you know, 99% of your, your shareholding. So I used to own 10%, I'm now going to own 0.1%. So if you add up all of the shareholders together, they're going to end up with less than 10%, which will allow the club to issue shares to somebody new and therefore they can get, you know, they, they can affect it. If I own 90% of a company, I can do what the hell I want. And you've seen 
at Palace, the problems that exist when you've got individual shareholders who have got you know a a proportion and they don't get on. You know, so so that's that's the pitch to the fans. Will you accept a dilution in your your stake in Rockdale? Are the shares of any value at present? If we're honest, not very much. It's a loss-making business. Um, if the club goes into liquidation, what happens? Well, a liquidator would come in, sell off the stadium to somebody else. The proceeds of that would then go to pay off the, the debt. And then any money remaining would go to the shareholders. But you, you don't buy shares in Rochdale Football Club in the aim of making a bit of money. You do it because you love the club. So I don't see any benefit in anybody going, well, I'm not going to sell these shares because I dilute my shareholding and therefore I'm going to get less from a liquidation because surely that's that's counterintuitive of, of being a Dale fan. Because that's the thing that worried me most, Kieran, because there's no talk of administration or, or any other talk. It was simply the option seems to be he gets new investment, the management structure changes, or it goes straight to liquidation. Yeah, and I, th- and I think the reason for that is that before an administrator would take on the job, the first thing that the administrator says is, how are my fees going to be paid during the course of the administration? Now, in the case of Berry, um, Steve Dale is is a scumbag, um, in my opinion. Okay, I think I, think I can say that. Um, but his goal was put Berry into administration. The administrator because he owned 99% of the shares, he would effectively fund the course of the administration. Now, the club had been expelled from, from the EFL, so the running costs were actually quite low. Um, and he would make money on, on, on the exit route through the sale of the ground. Now, that, that collapsed when you know, for, for a variety of reasons. Um, in the case of Rochdale, if the club goes into administration, who's going to be paying the players' wages? Because the club's not generating enough money to do that. Who's going to be paying the lecky bill? Who's going to be paying the pie supply? And the administrators say, "Well, we're not going to we're not going to fund it because who's going to pay our wages as well?" Um, so it clearly, you know, Simon Gage and the, the rest of the board directors say, "Well, we don't have the money to pay it." So therefore, the only alternative is to put it into liquidation. In the interests of solidarity, Kieran, I'm willing to stand shoulder to shoulder with you and agree that uh, Steve Dale is a scumbag. Um, I think we've had this conversation with producer Guy before. His lawyers would have to prove in the court that he's not a scumbag. And I think uh, even the best case here in the land would struggle in the court of law to prove Steve Dale wasn't a scumbag. But <laughs> on a general point, Kieran, according to the Manchester Evening News, I think Simon Gage has ploughed in about £570,000 into, into Rochdale. Simon Gage says that's his money and his family's money. So... You know he's he's taking responsibility and saying he can't do it anymore. But it does indicate, Kieran, what we've been saying for four years that the finances of football, at many levels, are just unsustainable. And when a club relies on one benefactor to keep it going by pumping money in week after week, then inevitably this is going to happen in the future to more and more clubs, Kieran, isn't it? Yeah, and you know Rochdale's not a wealthy town, so. You know the, the fans are saying, "Look, we love the club. 
we put money in. Yeah, we have bought shares. We put we buy the shirts. We uh, yeah, we have a couple of pints of the match, and we pay for our season. We we can't physically afford as well. And yes, it's the board of directors and the shareholder and the sort of the the main shareholders who have have put money in. I suspect what will also have to happen is you know, from, from, uh, that any loans which are outstanding, you know, they might have to be written off as well uh, in order to to present a package to a new investor, which which is attractive. And uh, you know, lots of people will take a financial hit and some will say, nobody wants to take a financial hit, but if, it's, if the alternative is no Rochdale, then that's something I'm prepared to do. And, and finally, Kieran, I think we should say uh, we know from experience we we're pretty much presenting the official Simon Gage point of view here. There will be Rochdale fans, I I know for a fact that will have a different view on what's happened. And of course, we're only too happy to listen uh, to what they have to say if they want to get in touch. We we appreciate there are always two, three, sometimes four sides to every story. So, of course, if there is an alternative um, narrative out there that other people want to put to us, we will happily look at it. Hi, I'm Steve Lamack, and every week I'm joined by Music Allies Head of Insight, Stuart Dredge, on The Price of Music, the weekly podcast all about the money behind the music industry. In each episode, we discuss the very latest goings-on in the music business and dig into the finances behind the big stories. So whether you're a music lover who just wants to know more about what really goes on in the industry, or you're an aspiring musician, manager or label owner who wants some inside knowledge on how Spotify's financial model really works, or what the future holds for independent live music venues, this is a show for you. Subscribe to The Price of Music in your podcast app now. See you soon. Kieran, you know, we talk about Rochdale and we're talking about a world in which, you know, two million pounds would be enough to solve the problem. And we move to a world, Kieran, in the Premier League where two million pounds would be handy if you found it down the back of a sofa. And the Premier League clubs are meeting on February 29th to try and finally agree on the funding deal for the EFL. And there are many people putting two and two together and saying they're doing this because of the imminent threat of an independent regulator. And I think that's a a valid observation. Um, it was an it was certainly it leaked or announced informally to the media yesterday. It's been described as an emergency meeting. Um, that's not necessarily the case. It could be, look, folks, we we need to get our act together. Um, the most recent meeting, which took place early in February, um, was inconclusive with regards to uh, the New Deal, um, which is the the least Rooseveltian uh, thing that I've ever seen uh, in terms of generosity. But what we appear to have is a £900 million six-year deal. So that's £150 million a year extra going from the Premier League to the clubs in the EFL. And I think there's a couple of of key caveats to that first of all if it's 150 million pounds coming out of the of the premier league central pot how are we going to cut that particular cake so the the super league six say well 150 divided by 20 
is £7.5 million per club. Why are we all arguing? And the, 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 the less wealthy clubs, the ones that aren't qualifying for the Champions League on a regular basis, and you know, we, the UEFA published their accounts recently. You know, Chelsea, we think Chelsea had a bad season last year. They made €97 million Euros in prize money alone. You know, that's not into taking into account um, uh, ticket receipts and shirt sales and so on. Um, they're saying, well, hold on, there's, there's an, as well as the gap between the Premier League and the EFL, the Premier League itself, the gaps between the haves and the, the have a bit have a bit less are getting wider and wider, wider and wider. Competitive balance is being decreased. Um, the, the sneaky six, they bullied the other clubs in 2016 after Leicester won the Premier League into giving the bigger clubs a greater slice of the international TV rights and so on. So therefore, we feel that that £150 um, should be tiered. So the club that finishes top makes a greater contribution and so on. And that's what they can't agree on. And apparently there's there's one Premier League club, and I don't know how true this story, who's saying that if, if the deal is agreed, then the Premier League was going to give some money for this season to the EFL, it's saying, well, if that's the case, we've already spent it. We'll have to go and borrow money. Um, and uh, they are uh, pleading poverty on that. So everybody's acting in their own self-interest. And I'm not going to be critical of that because that's life. But sometimes it, it is beneficial to to try to take a more holistic approach um, you know, to you know, the, the Premier League's more than happy to talk about the football family when it's putting out glossy press releases in its annual report. Well, well let's see uh, the, the clubs come across and uh, first of all settle this deal because, as you rightly said, legislation is progressing. We've seen Lucy Fraser, who's the effectively the minister for sport, say, "Get your asses into gear." There has been meetings between um, club owners from the Premier League and uh, those of the EFL, which took place a couple of weeks ago. By all accounts, the big six clubs didn't deign to appear at that meeting because they're too busy preening themselves in the mirror. Um, but that's that's the position we're in. If the regulator comes in and there's no deal, and the regulator has said, "Yeah, we want to be a regulator of last resort. We don't we don't want to get involved." In this, you, know, you can't you sort it out yourselves. What they were likely to do, and I think I've mentioned this before you know, many moons ago, is to employ something called game theory. And the way that game theory works is the Premier League put forwards its suggestion, the EFL put forwards its suggestion, and it's not a compromise. The regulator will say, I'm going to choose the best of those two. So therefore, it encourages people to to temper, to to, to sort of uh, you know, reduce the more outlandish things that we sometimes see because you've got to persuade somebody to, the regulator in this case, to either go for package A, which is the Premier League's proposals, or package B, that of the EFL. The Premier League, in addition to giving out this money, they want strings attached. And you, you can understand the EFL clubs being a bit cheesed off that you know their spending is being dictated to by... Uh, you know the Glazers and FSG and Daniel Levy and Stan Kroenke and so on. First of all, Kieran, I'm going to say, in the interests of self-interest, my self-interest, 
uh, as a freelancer. I hate February the 29th. That's, it's just the most, because you think it's so fantastic. End of January, short month coming up. I'm going to get paid quicker. Oh, you bugger. That's a really annoying. Secondly, Kieran, and these are two serious issues. First of all, you say the Premier League can't agree on the way the distribution should work, but there are rumours that some Premier League owners don't agree that the distribution should happen at all. And then secondly, I, I almost did a double take when you said that. It, and I'm going to, In fact, I'm going to do a sound double take. I'm going to go, hang on, whoa. You say there are Premier League clubs who say they can't currently afford to pay their share of the distribution. And, and would, is that what you said? They'd have to get loans to do that? That's that's the story which I've seen in one of the newspapers. Which Good grief. Um, yeah, uh, yeah. My eyebrows are, are used to uh, levitating uh, since we started recording this show, and it sounded like that uh, uh, they are protesting too much. Um, do do some owners not want to give the EFL any more money? Absolutely, because you know they they don't see beyond. The Premier League. In fact, if they had their way, you know, they'd abolish relegation. We just have this this twenty club competition, and uh, you know, the, the rest of football can go to hell in a handcart. Yeah, because they, because they've got no interest in football. You know, it is a purely an investment vehicle for them, and I, I think we know who those owners are. Um, but uh, yeah, I, I was I was taken aback as well in relation to to one club saying, "Oh, well, we've already allocated all of our budget for the rest of the the financial year." Um, and we'd have to go cap in hand to uh, to a bank if if the Premier League now withdraws some of that money. And what, Kieran, do you think they will be saying in the boardrooms of of Sheffield United and Burnley? And I mean, it's not it's not guaranteed they will go down, but it's looking increasingly likely that both those uh, teams will go down, notwithstanding Burnley's almost guaranteed three points at Sellers Park on Saturday. But will, will they be saying that we want to get this through as quickly as possible because we'll actually benefit? From from this distribution of Premier League money, or will they be saying we want to stop this because we, then we keep more of the Premier League money we already have? I, I suspect the latter. You, you, you can see it from their point of view. Um, if if we know that there is going to be nine hundred million pounds coming in six years, and we ain't going to be part of the Premier League, we don't particularly care how it's paid out in future years. But we don't want anything coming out of our pockets this year. So you, you end up doing sort of. You know, second guessing and third guessing the motivations of individual clubs. Now, Everton fans this week, Kieran, I'm sure would have been delighted to see Sir Jim Ratcliffe congratulating himself all over the back pages, meeting uh, Manchester United players, talking about how much money he's going to invest um, because the Premier League have finally, finally, finally rubber stamped his acquisition to 25%. Although I understand. He might not be able to spend as much money as he thought he would. But Everton fans will be wondering again, yet another week goes by with no news on 777 from the Premier League, but bad news on 777 from other sources. Yes, um, this is fantastic work undertaken by the uh, investigative website Josima. Um, And... What they've looked into is is two issues or two or three issues, and, and there's also um, some Paul Quinn, who's who's an Everton fan, who's who's again very very thorough in the work that he undertakes. Um, the first issue in respect of seven seven seven, and and this is I think one of the issues which has 
delayed the prep the Premier League being able to give a definitive answer is where are you getting your money from? Um, because it's and it looks as if if the reports from Josie Ma are correct that um, they are being funded by an organisation called ACAP, which is, and I quote, a risk solution and service provider. Now, that's the type of bland uh, caveat that uh, Uncle Terry's businesses <laughs> used to uh, go under. And people say, well, what's that? Oh, just, yeah, just, just sort out risks you know, and, uh, and provide services. And ACAP is owned by a gentleman called Kenneth King, who has been accused of and is therefore currently innocent of, until proven otherwise, of what I can only describe as, a quote, quoted here directly from the article, a complex and massive fraud um, in relation to financial-based uh, shenanigans. What we've also seen in respect of 777 has been a change in its credit rating. And what happens is you've got agencies, and what and you know if you are looking to borrow money, and, and we, we know this on a personal basis, you, know, you, you can go to uh, you know, Experian and places like that to do your own credit rating. Are organisations willing to lend to either individuals or individual companies? Now, by all accounts, 777's credit rating on the back of a, its financial performance, which we don't really know that much about because it's not submitting audited accounts. Um, the the nature of the things it's been investing in, which appear to be poorly performing financially, football clubs. Um, it's had a high turnover of executives. I think the finance director has gone. All of these things don't don't look good. Its credit rating has gone from excellent to fair, and it's now weak. I.e. You know, junk status if, if they was trying to issue to bonds or worse. Um, which means if, if you've got a weak credit rating, two things tend to happen. First of all, there are fewer people who are willing to lend to you. And secondly, because you are a higher credit risk, they're going to charge you a higher rate of interest on the back of that. So none of that looks good. We've also seen information come out that um, within the 777 stable of clubs, we have standard liege. Um, for the last three months, they have paid their wages late. It's it's a you know these are these are you know these are red flags upon red flags upon red flags. So whilst the Premier League is being given a lot of stick for not giving a definitive answer, they they are right to demand from 777 information. And if there's nothing of issue, you know, if it's all just you know, smear stories, then 777 should be in a position to be able to provide the evidence to, uh, to stand up and, and, and allow the, the uh, Premier League to, to approve, as we've seen with Jim Ratcliffe. You know, he's, he's whizzed it through in, in a fraction of the time um, we've had in respect of the Everton offer. The second issue in relation to, to Everton is what's happening with regards to the appeal. And that's, you know, it's nothing to do with 777, but Everton fans are getting increasingly fed up and you can understand their point of view. But it's not just Everton that it impacts because, you know, so we're recording this on you know, on Wednesday. Well, Luton are playing at Anfield tonight. Now, yeah. if, if that if that 10 points gets 
wiped out to zero, it means that Luton probably have to go for a win at Anfield, whereas perhaps tonight a draw could be a good result. And can you see that in hindsight, you know, football clubs and coaches are making decisions on this is what we've been trying to do today, lads, and then we've got all of this uncertainty thrown into the mix. And the same applies to Forest. And that change in the, the credit rating for 777, Kieran, that, that deterioration, that would be taken into account by the Premier League as they, as they continue to check whether Everton um, 777 is suitable to take over? Um, it will be part of the overall assessment, yes, but I don't think it will be critical in its own right. I think it, the issue for the Premier League will be to say to 777, on the back of this, you're going to have to be paying a lot more interest on any loans which you're taking out, which you subsequently use to, to acquire Everton Football Club. Um, we will therefore want to see the evidence that you've got the ability to repay those loans and the associated interest charges. So indirectly, yes. Directly, not quite the case. We understand, Kieran, that the appeal decision for Everton's points deduction is imminent. Um, and knowing our luck, that means it will be about 10 minutes after we finish recording this morning. Essentially. Um, but we, apparently it is on the way. And I think for all concerned, as you say, that needs to be resolved. Better news, though, Kieran, for West Brom fans. Yes. Um, so uh, our friend Ali from Action for Albion will be uh, not, not only it will be absolutely delighted from this. And I've had some messages from him to that effect. Uh, West Brom are on a bit of a roll at present mm. on the pitch. Um, so what we have in respect of West Brom is that there is an, an approved deal uh, in terms of uh, Gauchem Lai has agreed to sell and um, he's agreed to sell to somebody called Shilen Patel, who owns Bologna, uh, or is it, sorry, a part interest in Bologna. Um, and it looks as if the deal, uh, Gauchem Lai bought West Bromwich Albion for £200 million. It looks as if he's selling the club for 20 but also handing across £40 million worth of a debt. So you're effectively you're picking up a, a £60 million tab. So Gauchem Lai is going to have to take a, a big cut in this. The new owner is going to pay in three instalments. Um, there's another loan which is... Uh, due to a company called Warmfront Holdings, which yeah we've spoken about this loan uh, where they were charging interest at 76% a year, but they've agreed to uh, waive the interest uh, because I think the people involved are West Brom fans and they, they were a bit suspicious of Goucher and Lai. So that, that loan is going to be repaid in three instalments as well. Um, the only person that appears to have done well out of West Brom in recent years is, is Jeremy Peace, who... Um, he he borrowed money, which he then used to, to buy a load of shares in West Brom, which he didn't own. A bit similar to some, some of the complications we've seen at Rochdale. Um, and then he sold all of the shares he just bought, along with his existing shares, to Goucher and Life for £200 million and, and then disappeared to live in Jersey. Don't know why. Mm. Well, it's a nice place to live, Kieran. I can't think of any, any other yeah. reason why... I don't know what the banking regulations are like over there. I don't. I don't suppose anyone really knows. You just—it's a lovely place to go, as we as we discovered recently. Um, information this week, Kieran, that two Premier League clubs, two London Premier League clubs, are doing rather nicely when it comes to Moulin. Uh, sadly, one of them's not Palace, 
But the first one's Brentford, and it, they seem to be doing very well off the pitch, Kieran. Yes, um, they've announced their second set of results in, in the Premier League. Um, in 21-22, they were one of only two clubs in the Premier League to, to make a profit operationally. Um, and and the club will probably admit that it themselves, you know, Palace made a profit in their first season in the Premier League when they were promoted in 2013. Brighton did exactly the same in you know, 2017-18. And Brentford did this. And then Palace lost money in subsequent seasons and Brighton lost money in subsequent seasons because you get that benefit in your first season in the Premier League. Two-thirds of your squad is from the Championship. They'll have had a pay rise from probably you know 18 grand a week to 30 grand a week and players are happy. Um, and on the back of that, you know, the, the, that's a lot less than the average in the Premier League. So the club makes a profit. And then in your second season, the, the players and their representatives go knocking at the chief executives. Well, okay, I've proven myself to be a Premier League footballer. Any chance of a pay rise? So we've seen a substantial increase in Brentford's uh, wages, but it's still managed to, to operate at a profit. I suspect it's it's we haven't got all the payroll costs for the Premier League yet. But I suspect it's in the bottom three or four. Um, they did really well again last season, so they get the benefit of the the additional three million pounds per place um, for finishing uh, well in the Premier League, and they've made a profit. Extremely well run club, um, who again appear to have a long term plan, which is. Really useful, you know. In in terms of you look what's happened in terms of their player trading model in the Premier League, they used to sell players in the Championship to to subsidise the losses or you know to, to help to cover the losses. That made a lot of sense. They were really good at recruiting. They've moved to the Premier League. They're now not selling players because they got the higher TV money coming in, and they're not going to sell to players for two or three seasons to embed themselves in the Premier League, and then. I'd expect them to to start to move to, to more of a of a purchase and sale model, but yeah, they seem to have it seem to have it planned out. Well, not only have they made a profit, Kieran, according to producer guy and his little squiggled, I don't know how he managed to squiggle notes on an email, but producer guy manages to do it. They've made more profit in two seasons in the Premier League than Man United have done in thirty one seasons. That's that's right, and and the reason for that, yeah, you know, I. I, I, for my sins, and this will come as no great surprise, but I suspect a little bit of disappointment. I do keep a record of how much profit every club has ever made in the history of the Premier League since it started in 1992-93, and I put it out on a little table. Um, and you know, to, to be that successful, to you know, Brentford are now, you know, after two seasons in the Premier League, they're about fifth or sixth in, in the all-time table of profit-making clubs. It puts them ahead of Manchester United. Manchester United would be top of that table um, were it not for the fact that they've paid out over £900 million in interest on loans taken out by the Glazers um, as part of their, their strategy for, for acquiring the club in 2005. I, I just have this image, Kieran. I've had it since the second time we met, to be perfectly honest. I formed my opinion of you very quickly. Is it where other people have photographs of their their loved ones and their pets on the mantelpiece or on the toilet wall. You've got photographs of profit figures from the Premier League from 1992. Well, and let's move on to Spurs, Kieran, because the good news is 
Spurs are top of the Premier League and third in Europe, Kieran. Imagine that. Yes. Um, so clearly we're not talking about football. Um, <laughs> we're talking about finance. And, and yeah, we've said this or, or on, yeah, on many an occasion, Spurs are the best run business in English football. Spurs fans are hacked off because they know that they're the best run business in English football and it's, it's not delivering. In, in terms of trophies, although you know, they, they are certainly entertaining to watch. Um, so, so what UEFA have said is they're really good in terms of the money which they make on a match-by-match basis um, in terms of match-day income. Now, where does that come from? Yes, it comes from ticket sales. So, so again, let's break that down into its components. Spurs have got a decent stadium. You know, in terms of capacity, 62,000. Um, because it's a brand new stadium, they very much focused on the corporate and hospitality offerings. And they are top-notch. And therefore, they come at top-notch prices. Season ticket prices are steep. What Spurs have also done spectacularly well is they've they've gone down the route of how do we maximise return per head? Well, what do people do when they go to a match? Yes, they watch the football and prepare to buy a ticket. Um, but we don't want their, them there for 90 minutes. We want them there for you know, two and a half hours, three hours. And what we've seen is that the move from the old White Hart Lane to the new White Hart Lane has resulted in Spurs fans being there on average for an extra 40 minutes. Well, what are you going to do? You know, you're not, you're not going to stare at the grass. You're not going to go and look. Oh, look, 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 look at the padding in those seats. You're going to be spending money. So that's what what Spurs have done. And again, yeah, there, there are plenty of boozers to drink outside the stadium. So what in terms of pricing on match days, the pricing is it's not cheap, but it's not that at that level where you go. Well, there's no way I'm paying that. I'm, I'm going to go down. You know, I'm going to go down the road. So. They're making far more money from catering, from from you know either individual ticket holders or season ticket holders than they were at, certainly at what the old White Hart Lane. But they're doing far better than than the vast majority of clubs, in fact, all of the clubs in the rest of the Premier League. So, so I, I estimate that they're making seventy one pounds per fan per match, um, and that's pre VAT because of this deliberate strategy of let's make let's make the stadium a welcoming place let's make the concourses nice and nice and wide let's organize the drinks and the food in such a way that you don't have to go and queue for 10 minutes you're straight in straight out and, and, and so on and so forth <clears throat> I remember in um, 2016 Kieran uh, being in a pub near the old White Hart Lane I think it was called the beehive um, which said away fans welcome uh, wasn't quite true, but they did have a big sign saying, away fans, welcome. So we were in one bar celebrating an, unli- an unlikely win, inspired by an unlikely Martin Kelly goal. Um, and <laughs> the landlord got on, jumped onto the bar with a sledgehammer and shouted at the top of his voice, there are Tottenham fans grieving in the next bar. Keep it down. <laughs> Which turned out to be exactly the wrong thing you could say to a group of about 100 Palace fans celebrating. Once we'd mentally calculated yes. that there were many more of us than there were of them, obviously.
stories, Kieran, involving uh, Man United, the second of which I think is a better story than the first, as far as they're concerned, is Manchester United and Newcastle United, there's some unseemly haggling over sporting director Dan Ashworth this week, who Newcastle have now put on gardening leave. Yes. So how desperate are Manchester United for Dan is the the issue that we have here. So... <laughs> I didn't I, see that I, one. I, I worked hard on that one. That's very fun. Yeah, I didn't make that. Well done, Kieran. I've trained you well. <laughs> <laughs> um, so Dan Ashworth is the current director of football at Newcastle United. He has a contract of employment to that effect. And he has a period of notice in that contract of employment. That's private between him and the club. Manchester United have approached him um, as to whether he was interested in a in a similar role at Old Trafford. He's said yes, um, and therefore he's gone to his employer and said, I want to move on. Newcastle have said, eh, well, take a look at your contract. When you left Brighton, Brighton, we wanted you immediately. Brighton put you on gardening leave. Brighton asked for a lot of money. I think they originally, uh, sorry, they eventually agreed on around about three to four million, and then he was allowed to move. So, what we have here is is a scenario whereby he might have to wait twelve months or more. Uh, again, talking to some of our secret employment lawyers, they say yeah, more than twelve months. It does sort of get a bit bit tricky. Um, so, yeah, there's there's a lot of in, it depends here. Newcastle, by all accounts, at present are saying. We want twenty million pounds for his services, and th- there's mixed messages coming out of Newcastle because um, you know, Newcastle fans are going, "Well, we don't think he actually made that much influence." You know, if he's going to take all the credit for the successful transfers, there's a few others which weren't. Yeah, you know, why don't you do your due diligence on some on the Italian lad who's who's currently banned and so on? Um, so, so where do we go from here? It all depends on the degree of urgency that Manchester United have to put him in place with regard, presumably, for the summer transfer window. Um, and there will be emails you know, bouncing to and forth, and they will eventually reach a, a, a decision as to the level of compensation, or he, he sits you know, trimming his petunias for a few months. <laughs> Is this episode sponsored by Manscaped? <laughs> it's also okay. I mean, let's be fair. There's, there's, you know, both clubs could afford whatever either club wanted to get his services. There's, there's a bit of macho headbutting here, isn't there? It's, it's a bit of you know, Man United fans want to be able to say to Newcastle United fans, "We're a bigger club than you. We've taken your sporting director." Essentially, it's all. This is why I say it's slightly unseemly, but um, you you sent a very exciting message this week, Kieran, a, a tweet, a post, whatever it's called these days, about the accounts published by Manchester United women. You're very impressed with both the figures and the way the accounts were presented. Yes. Uh, uh, I, I have on my account at Companies House a link to the accounts of all of the, the teams in the WSL and the WSL Championship, most of them uh, fall within the realms of what we call a a small company, which is which is set by statute. And if you are a small company, 
you don't produce cash flow information, you don't produce income statement information. So we don't know how much revenue the clubs generate, we don't know the wages, we don't know the interest costs and so on. Manchester United, I suspect, fall within that realm, but fair play to the club. They've gone, even though we probably could report less, we're going to report the full information. So I think they deserve a lot of credit for that. Um, and Manchester United's revenue is is up by a third. Um, their revenue for 22-23 is £7 million. And, and again, I think it's always important to benchmark because people will say, well, you know, it's, you know, it's, it's, it's around about 1% of the men's team's total revenue. But Manchester United women aren't Manchester United men's team. And so, you know, I, I, they're not trying to, to be Manchester United men's team. Um, Manchester United women generate uh, revenue which would put them uh, to, in the top 10 of League One clubs. So, you know, that's the progress which we are seeing as far as the women's club is concerned. They probably exceed the revenue of practically every League Two club this season, with the exception of Wrexham, who I think are in you know, in a, in a particular point, a place, Bradford City, because of their, their, their unique uh, uh, ticket pricing model. So given that Manchester United only came into being in, what, 2018, 2019, in, in, the, in the space of five years, yes, they've got the, yeah, they've got the benefit of the badge and the brand and so on. Uh, it is a very impressive acceleration. The club is breaking even. The wage bill has gone up again. You know, that wage bill is is broadly on par with with some of some of the lower league clubs and so on. Um, what is different in Manchester United's accounts from from lower league clubs is that eighty percent of their money is coming through the commercial route. As you know, the, the WSL TV deal is very modest. I think they only had one fixture uh, taking place, one or two fixtures taking place in that season at Old Trafford, whereas we've seen at Arsenal, um, yeah, and congratulations to Arsenal and, and the way that their marketing team, their commercial team, they sold out the Emirates you know, with, with a record uh, attendance for a WSL match. They've now had, what, five or six matches take place at the Emirates this season, a minimum attendance of 40,000. It's now up to 60,000. So th- there is clearly um, a financial route in the women's game at the same time, you, you go below those four, you know, three or four elite clubs and there's a very, very sh- sharp drop in terms of the revenues being generated. Mm. And why were you so impressed, Kieran, by the presentation of the accounts themselves? Because they went beyond what they had to do uh, from a legal point of view, which allows me to a to do a bit of analysis and yeah, that's why you know we, we all know i'm a dweeb and that's what i enjoy but i think it's great from a transparency point of view it allows fans of manchester united women to say look you know, this is where we are in, in the football landscape and i think it's something that other clubs should follow um because i think as fans we are stakeholders in our clubs and all stakeholders deserve as much full and frank information, including bad information, as well as good. Um, and, and this is one way through a financial lens that that can be achieved. Well, talking about the lower end of the men's game, Kieran, as you mentioned, our old friend Andy Holt has been outlining in detail the financial implications of Accrington Stanley's relegation to League Two. Yes. Um, and as we know, a- Andy says it as he sees it. So, um, you know, he said that, the club 
lost money. He he budgets for the club to lose money. Um, last year they lost more than they they expected due to the fact that you know, he was hoping they wouldn't have got relegated first and foremost, um, but also uh, in terms of playing recruitment. And you know, we all have opinions on players and you know how good they are and so on. He he didn't hold back. Um, you know, and the club did have some you know, bad luck in terms of recruitment and injuries and so on. Um, so, yeah, he, he, he was saying losing more money than I would like to. Uh, yeah, we had Andy on the show what, you know, in the last six months where I, I've never seen him as down uh, as he was then. I, I thought he was he was combative um, on, on social media. And uh, he said... If somebody comes in and makes me a good offer, I'll consider it. But I got the impression he's uh, he's enjoying the fight and the challenges, and his his affection for the club is still very much there, mm. um, which is good to hear. But uh, Crawley Town have posted big losses, Kieran, and in any normal news pod, that would be the end of the story. We'd just say Crawley Town have posted big losses. So as everyone else, and move on. But the reason I want to explore it in a little tiny bit more detail is that we spoke to Martin Calladine recently, who's written a brilliant book about the effect of crypto in English football. And Crawley Town were one of the clubs we talked about at at some length. So I'll be interested to hear what you have to say about those losses, Kieran. Yes, so, so Crawley lost four million quid, um, and that yeah, you know, that's eighty grand a week. That's yeah. a lot of money yeah. by by League Two standards. Yeah. The, the clubs do tend to lose money, but certainly not not to that extent. Um, so, therefore, you ask the question, why and how? And I'm, I'm not being you know, unpleasant to the, the, the two owners. Um, they don't know anything about football. And my concern is that, you know, as Martin explained, uh, Crawley Town had an initial sort of benefit stroke burst of interest and extra money coming into the club. They sold non-fungible tokens, which were then used for a variety of purposes, such as what position should we try to recruit for? They've been through quite a few managers. They looked at one stage, they, you know, they were in genuine danger of, of dropping out of the EFL because yeah, they were they were you know, too close to the relegation zone for comfort, but things seem to have stabilised. Um, that initial interest from the crypto community has surprise surprise now dried up and therefore my concern is that their their lack of familiarity with the industry means that they are in a position where they can be taken advantage of because they put their trust in people and and uh, whose interests are self-interest rather than the interests of Crawley Town Football Club. And that can be very expensive. And we've seen that happen at other clubs as well. You know, new owners come in, unfamiliar with the industry. This, this person seems pretty reliable and you get your trousers taken down and absolutely fleeced. And, and that's where yeah, Crawley don't generate enough money to be able to, to, to lose £4 million on a regular basis unless you yeah, we, we were talking about... Uh, Rochdale earlier, you know, unless you've got somebody with that with that level of of wealth to to subsidise those losses. Uh, just just remind me, kid. By all accounts, I mean Martin agreed himself. These these two guys at Crawley are nice chaps, well meaning chaps. It's, it's wag me, isn't it? Well, is that, that they're... that's wag me? Yeah, yeah. yeah. I've, I've had a conversation with uh, with one of them, and 
you know, a long, it was a very long conversation, and he came across. I'll, I'll be honest, I'm not a good judge of character, but he came across very, very well. And it, 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 you know, he, he 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 wasn't coming out with outlandish nonsense. Um, and he just wanted sort of a, a bit of background in terms of you know, the finances of football and how it operates and so on. Yeah, unfortunately, as, as Martin says in his book, the, the general gist is that crypto doesn't understand football and football doesn't understand crypto. And while we're in that hinterland, yes. it's going to cause problems for both. This last story, Kieran, you and I were both relatively equitable people. We've, we've seen a lot in life. You kind of realise it's not worth getting upset about most things, although come back to me at 5 to 5 Sellers Park on Saturday if uh, a brand new style of football goes tits up. But this story, Kieran, we're both huge supporters of grassroots football. This last story just really, really annoyed me, really, mm. for so many reasons, and some of which we we discussed with, with our interview guests this week. But it's just, this is wrong, this story, Kieran. Yes, so this is the... Uh... This is the borough of Maidenhead. So, you know, we've just been talking about the Premier League finding £900 million over six years to um, fund uh, not grassroots football, but to have an agreement with the EFL to try to make the, the cliff edge a little little less steep, but it's still pretty steep. Um, but this is in relation to um, utilisation of, of park football, um, five-a-side facilities and so on. And the borough of Maidenhead has put up the the season long price for the pitch hire from a not already inconsiderable two thousand two hundred and thirty three pounds to four thousand pounds a season, and um, some of the other price rises. I think for uh, for kids, you know, th- there used to be some facilities which were available for kids teams for free. There's now going to be a charge for this, and and you look at this, um, yeah, th- this this country has has a problem with its health. He's got a problem with obesity. He's got a problem with lack of exercise. And, you know, we, I think we both consider ourselves to be reasonably well-rounded. We, we know that we are part of the problem because we, we are, you know, our lifestyles could be better and we should be doing more, but there should also be facilities to allow people to, to get exercise. It's good from a physical point of view. Um, it, it's good for getting out of the house point of view. It's good for, but for, you know, for meeting new people, bonding, mental health. There are so many benefits of uh, you know, competitive sport or, or facilities. I'm not necessarily saying that the Maidenhead uh, Council are wholly responsible for this because there's a much broader issue, and you know, we're not into politics, a much broader issue of cutbacks in terms of the, the funds which are made available to, to local councils. But you know, this is you know, practically doubling in price, just short of that. And it does mean that there's a genuine danger of facilities being made available to a much smaller pool of people. And that is not good. It's not good for the, the lads and lasses and kids and grandkids. You know, I, I play walking football. Well, you know, okay, if I play three pounds a match. If they put it up to five pounds a match, it ain't going to influence me. But there's, you know... I play walking football. I'm in my 60s. There's blokes there in the 70s. There's blokes there who, whose main income is, is is their state pension. Well, it's not right. It's embarrassing. We are the fifth richest country in the world. And why are we doing this to to the people of this country? To be fair, Kieran, there are 
ex-teammates of ours who used to play with us in the old days who would say we played walking football back then as well. So not that much has changed. But <laughs> the thing is, Kieran, I don't care what politics you are. I don't care what what party people listen to this vote for. I hope they do vote. But I don't think anyone could disagree that if you, no matter how local authorities are feeling the squeeze, if you start taking football pitches away, cricket pitches away, running tracks away, libraries away, and you're just storing up problems for the next generation to deal with. And it's these are amounts of money that, in terms of local budgets, are minimal. And it's like it's like you say, Kieran, you, you, you're taking the risk, you know, just old chaps, just in, not, not just the physical fitness level of mucking about playing walking football, but just getting out of the house, getting some fresh air, getting some, having some chat, being able to talk about problems. It just really... In, oh, sorry. Thank you to everyone who's donated to the pod via our Patreon page. If you'd like to make a small monthly contribution to the pod as well, that'd be very kind of you, and it will get you access to our chat community and our regular quizzes. And you can do that by going to patreon.com slash priceoffootball. If you'd like a question you'd like answered on the show, email us at questions at priceoffootball.com. And you can go to the same website if you want to buy one of our books or one of our T-shirts. We'll be back on Monday with our next questions pod. In the meantime, I shall hand you over to Mr. Kieran Maguire for his customary farewell. Well, thanks to everybody. Um, and also thanks to people that are highlighting some of these stories to us. You know, the, the Rochdale story. Um, came through via a fan. The the Maidenhead story came through when somebody linked us to to those stories. So we, so we do appreciate it, and, and we will try to to give a voice at, at all levels of football. Um, if you if you want to support the show through Patreon, we're we're genuinely touched by that, and you get you get the benefits also of, of no adverts uh, if, if that's something you you want to address. Um, there's another way of supporting the show, and that's to go to uh, go to your app and, and give us a review. Uh, helps us in the charts. Helps helps uh, the the algorithm used by Apple and Spotify to indicates to them that people are still interested in the show. Doesn't matter what you say. So you could even say you would rather have the show presented. I think these two could become bedfellows uh, over the course of the next few months. Uh, you could even say you would rather have the show presented by Dan Ashworth and Alan Titchmarch, and it wouldn't make a blind bit of difference to us. <laughs> I'd rather you didn't use the word bedfellows and Alan Titchmarsh in the same sentence, Kieran, if you didn't mind. Uh, although he would say he's a different type of bed altogether in his lovely back garden. Bye, everyone. Bye. The price of football. I'm for football.